Hi, this is Ron Gilbert, and you're listening to the Scene World Podcast. Welcome to the podcast. I'm AJ. Jurg is over there, and that means this is Studying Naked Mole Rats with AJ and Jurg. Nice. Yes! So, um... <laughs> it's really the Scene World podcast. It is, really, yes. So, news! Well, well for quick. once... Just jump, uh, jump right into it, why don't we? In a uh, minute, we're going to be talking with, with Chris Abbott uh, about, about oh, Project Hubbard. Yeah, right. Which is going on right now. Currently, they are fundraising. This will be going on through... Um, through October and should be ending in November, correct? November the 5th. So this one's a time-sensitive one, so everyone should check that out when they're done listening to this and and, and donate and and contribute to it. Yeah. Yeah, before we talk to Chris Abbott, though, there's potentially some news that we have. Yes. Okay. I was (laughs) a quick starter today. Yes. So Chris Wilkins, all about Chris, this, this podcast, released a new Kickstarter about a new Oliver Twins game. Okay. And it's again a Dizzy game, and it's called Mystery World Dizzy, a new old game by the Oliver Twins. And this time it will be Paul and his see multi-region, because uh, the first time I was actually a beta tester and it only worked correctly on NTSC, and it would crash on Paul NESs. Wow, that's different. Usually nobody, the way around. Nobody really understood why a British developer duo would make an NTSC game. But uh, who knows what happened in the 90s? <laughs> the 90s were a crazy time. Yeah, right. When you had uh, Rob Hubbard, just to mention it again, working for Electronic Arts, making Paul tunes and having an NTSC fixed. Or, for example, Activision making a Paul release, which was Power Drift. Their only Paul release Activision ever did was Power Drift in Europe. Nobody really understood why they made a, a European game, you know. Yeah. But hey, that were the times, you know. Yeah, yeah. And um, it's not it's not actually the only game that crashes. For example, World Games, the NTC version for the C64, crashes on Paul C64 because the timing is so critical. Another game that crashes is um, Rocket Ranger for the NES, the NTC version, crashes on Paul machines too. So it's not so uncommon that um, Paul games crash on NTC or NTC games crash on Paul. It didn't happen all the time, but sometimes... A very graphic intensive games especially would crash because the timing was so critical to the 50 60 hearts yeah so so let me ask you what's your opinion about uh, sam's journey being ntc fixed and to make up for that timing issue using a roy um, is that downer for you or not at all um i'm all for that uh it's a good um solution i guess I have, I have an RU, so I'll, I, I'm ordering. I've ordered uh, the pre-ordered Sam's Journey, so um, yeah. So I'm looking forward to playing that, and it's cool that they would. I mean, there's so many, there's so many different solutions now for RUs um, available. It's nice to be able to use them for something. I think. Yeah, I remember a few podcasts back. You said you aren't a fan of the. Um, uh, RAM expansion unit that's the full name but well nowadays it's getting more, more use I, I am uh, a fan bad. of it what I'm not a fan of is um, I have the uh, Aprospan it's the multi-cartridge thing that supposedly lets you use certain cartridges with other cartridges and the RAM expansion is one of those things they say that will work with certain other things and, and the idea is that I would like to have that and my fast load working which doesn't work most of the time and aside from that is the fact that you've got this this giant thing sticking straight up and it's getting in the way of the screen so you can't you know it's just it's is not it's not elegant but i don't have a problem with the expansion itself 
I have the RAM expansion unit, but the CMD model, hmm. which is actually smaller, but using the same parts like the Commodore one. Right, right. Yeah, it also doesn't have. Um, I don't think it uses as much as much power. Like this one, I had to get the uh, the, the heavy duty power supply for the. 64. Yeah, the HiPod tested ones. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, actually, the last one was Dreamworld Pogi, also by the Oliver Twins. That the at least a game that is not dizzy. Um, all right, so you you think it's not bad? Yeah. I think it's it's really cool, and I said that a lot of times that games are officially NTSC fixed, mm-hmm. so it it's opening the market to 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 America. Yeah, uh, that's something we started with Steamroll, by the way. <laughs> Ooh, yeah. Um, other news? Well, other there's, news? um, the, um, the Pro Division game competition is going on. Um, there's currently 14 participants. Um, there's only a few days left. You can register up until October 31st to join the competition. Wow. Um, so you can register. There's three different ways, or actually a couple of different ways. Uh, you can, you can post on a thread at Lemon64. Uh, you can post in the thread on Forum64. You can mail uh, an, an email to competition at prodivision.games, or you can go to the forum in the ProDivision page, and we will link to all these in the description below. But that's an interesting ongoing thing that's happening right now that, you know, if you want to get into it, you can get into it. Great. Great. Definitely something to get into it. Yeah. Um... Well, another news is there will soon be some racing game for the 64 yeah. multi-platform, and Andrew Fisher, our very own Andrew Fisher, did the music for that one. Really? Yeah. Oh, it's called yeah. 8-Bit Slicks. Well, I, I didn't know Andrew did the, the music for that. How? Uh, that's, uh, <laughs> that's pretty good. Yeah, I figured that out when he was... Retweeting our C64 TV ah, tweet cool. and saying, "Here's the game I made the music for." Yeah, this is a, a top-down um, racing game. It's a remake of of a game that existed in the past, but it's going to be network, so you can play it online with friends across platforms. Because there's going to be a, uh, there's supposed to be an Apple version, Apple II version, and an Atari version, and you know all these different ver- you know eight bit machines uh, will be able to to play this game. So will we will we do will we do a a, um, a Twitch live stream again? Absolutely, we should invite okay. the developer of that game and yeah. Andrew as a music guy. Yeah. So just to mention that we made we made a similar Twitch show and we will link to that in the podcast description mm-hmm. because we made a record on YouTube and it was like three hours talking about net games yeah. on the C64 I even didn't know that you can talk so long about such a topic <laughs> but it yeah. was very interesting yeah absolutely and we were backed by Bill Hirsch from Commodore who made promo for it yeah Totally surprised about that, but hey, it's uh, great. Yeah, so um, so that's good to know that um, that um, there's not only one developer, but now more than one developer. There's a lot on of stuff getting developed right now for for the yeah. 64. It's actually really like I always say. For so many Kickstarters and hardware, I need a second job to buy it all. Yeah, really. So, yeah. <laughs> when you when you when you are in a job interview, so why do you want to work for us as a second job? Because, because there's so much C64 and retro stuff on Kickstarter and <laughs> on eBay and all those other places. I need more money. Yeah. Right. Um. Oh, I don't have any more. Do you have any more news? Good question. Oh, yes! Doom is actually being ported to the Switch. Oh, really? Um, and it's going to be released on Switch on November the 10th. Yeah. Cool. Yeah, so in roughly four weeks. Nice. Um, it's pretty interesting because we got the feedback after our Sega podcast mm-hmm. that a lot of Switch games are bad and... Have a sluggish 
frame rate or bad graphics. Um, for example, FIFA Soccer mm-hmm. on Switch is using the Xbox 360 engine, and people are disappointed by that. But I think it's not the developer's fault. It's just that the console is not very um, powerful, you know. Right. And 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 Sonic Mania is also sluggish. People told me. So um, and um, yeah, well, yeah. we will see. Yeah. We will see. I don't have a Switch, and I'm not planning to get one this year. Maybe next year. Um, I don't have one it's... either, but I know some people that do. So maybe I'll borrow it. Yeah. Playing some, some Doom, yeah. So anyway, now nowadays developers are slowly um, adapting to Switch, which is funny because um, if you if you watched our um, YouTube videos with interviews on um, Gamescom this year, most developers said no, we are not planning to release for Switch this year. Yeah. So the majority of good titles and um, the majority of developing studios is waiting till next year till they figured out a way to make games looking better and performing better. Yeah. So I don't know I don't know if Nintendo made a good move in releasing yet another uh, not so comparable console on the performance side. Well, it takes a little bit of time to get it to get people used to it and to get the specs and whatnot out there, so that developers know what they can do with it. So, hmm, could just be a matter of time. Do you think? Do you think Nintendo should have gone for a stronger console because they, they Nintendo they never has gone hard. for strong consoles. All of Nintendo's consoles have been kind of a little bit behind. Yeah, except the SNES, which yeah. was better on the tech space. Um, yeah tech specs compared to the Genesis or Mega Drive in Europe. Despite, uh, despite as we um, learned in the Sega interview, despite Sega had blast processing. Yes, yeah, the blast processing. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So, so you don't think it's a downer that's Not Switch necessarily. Now, if, the games, we- if the games are made well, then it's a good game. It doesn't require the best hardware in order to be a good game. As we've seen, you know, we're still playing... What's your opinion the about move, the move from EA to use uh, Xbox 360 um, engine um, on FIFA Soccer? I, I don't know. What's going on? Should they have waited till the next year, like Konami? Potentially, or? potentially yeah. Hmm. That, that's a pretty short news section, then. Yeah, well, it's still 15 minutes. You want to go? So we are talking to Chris Abbott. He is a... He is a musician, and he is the the main guy behind uh, Project Hubbard, which is coming out, which will be starting on October fifth, which will have already started by the time that everyone hears this. But but it's it's going on now. Yeah, you are mainly known for um, doing Z sixty four audio. Yes, yeah. <clears throat> and being the uh, looking after the composers' uh, tunes, mm-hmm. uh, being a publisher for them. Um, you also work together with others like Matt Cray, right? Yes, yeah. I helped him out with his uh, with getting started with his Kickstarter reformation, and um, lots of other stuff as well. I generally act as a resource for other composers. How did that actually start? That you um, created Z64 Audio and started publishing for composers? Um, I asked. No. <laughs> <laughs> In 1994, I started. Um, I got a sound card and I started doing MIDI files of Commodore 64 tunes and putting them on CompuServe and AOL. Um, people liked them. People were saying, "Wouldn't it be great to have a CD of this stuff?" And um, at the time, there were people who were saying, "Yes, I'm going to go into the studio and do a CD of this stuff," but no one did. No one had done it. No one was going to do it. So I did. Um, I, I, I emailed all the Rob Hubbards on CompuServe. Uh, when you could do that kind of thing on the internet. <laughs> and uh, he wrote back, including a few other Rob Hubbards who were very puzzled. Um, and we got talking from there and um, eventually contributed to the first CD. Um, I, I sent him some stuff and he said, you've missed, kind of missed the point there. And then got got in a sequencer and did some programming and did some playing and came up with something much better. 
and uh, that went on to back in time one. Um, a few years later, it uh, became sensible to, because uh, I'd done a lot of legal legwork to, for back in time, so it made sense to go to the composer and say, look, you know, there's people coming and trying to cover this stuff, and I know the copyright mechanisms. I know how the money flows in the back end when people release a CD of something. Um, so I can help you out with that because otherwise it's just floating around and people will rip you off. And if I didn't do it, someone else was probably going to. Someone with maybe who was a bit more exploitative. I see. We'll, interesting. We'll mention any names on that one. Oh, I, I didn't have any names in mind. It's just oh. that power. You know, that there's a vacuum. When when there's a vacuum and there's potential money in it, it someone will get sucked in. Mm-hmm. And so I'm basically there to stop that happening. <laughs> <laughs> I make sure we lose all the money, so there's no money, so no one's interested. <laughs> so you are you are the good guy. <laughs> yeah. Well, yeah. Um, there's been been things like Zombie Nation and whatever where I, I wasn't allowed to do what I was supposed to be doing, and as a result, um, he ran off with a piece of Commodore 64 music and never gave it back. Mm. Uh. That's still annoying. Okay. But uh, he had the lawyers, and uh, poor old Dave Whitaker didn't. I see. And, and how did how did your involvement in computers started? Was it like the typical story, being a kid playing computer games? Um, being a kid, not being allowed to play computer games in, at the start because it was at school, and uh, there were Commodore pets, and uh, you weren't allowed to play computer games on them. You had to create your own games, and uh, do serious things like learn machine code but we still played games but uh only when the teacher was out of the room and you had to make them first <laughs> sometimes yeah we didn't have a cassette deck no there, there was a there, there was a one one disk drive and you had a bit of plastic pipe that had to you had to put on top of your computer to signify that you were actually the person using the disk drive it's called the flag <laughs> nice okay interesting weird <laughs> so and and from there as i said in the early 90s you thought you are doing um publishing of remixes and music and so on you, you mentioned midi which is interesting because most people think midi sucks pretty much um it depends how you program it, it it'll never sound as good as a series of expensive synthesizers put through a mixer but you can you can you can get some good results out of it the the AWE and the Yamaha XG both had pretty good uh, pretty good facilities and uh, if you captured the vibrato and captured the the essence of the piece in terms of the way it was performed then it was possible to make it sound similar to the SID but also to expand it with instruments um of course you know it sounds quite basic now but um, it went down pretty well at the time because there's nothing to compare it with. There was vgmusic.com and and uh, most of the MIDI files on that were fairly terrible. Um, these ones at least had that essence of SID, which is pretty important um, unless you're going into a completely different style. There has to be some style somewhere, whether it's the style of the SID or whether you're taking it into big band or whether you're making it orchestral. But it has to be something as opposed to nothing. And hmm. the, MIDI file, the MIDI files were something because they reminded people of the tunes and they could play them on the stuff they had because SID players weren't... weren't there, there were some, but they weren't advanced and they weren't particularly common and the internet wasn't the internet-ish. I mean, it was, but right. uh, HVSC didn't exist yet. Um, hmm. it, it was still... Um, what was the the name of the of what HVSC was before that? Oh, so yeah, I, I, uh, I, yeah, I can't think. Of it. I know what you're talking about though, because I remember and, that. Uh, and then there was the top 100 SIDs on the Amiga, mm-hmm. and that was the closest people were coming to good emulation. So there, there was a kind of there, there wasn't the assurance that the SIDs would be remembered by history, mm-hmm. or be able to be played by future generations because no one saw this future coming. <laughs> um, so. The MIDI files were kind of an attempt to nail things down in history and keep things alive. Hmm. The CD was pretty much the same deal. It was to, to get Rob Hubbard onto CD, create uh, some tracks which represented the originals to, in a more physical form. Oh, Rob Hubbard took um, took part in a lot of projects. For example, the Run 10 album. 
that was actually um, done with an orchestra in in the Netherlands. Indeed, yes, the C64 orchestra. Uh, yep. The Rear Cotti Ensemble, I think. Yes, or, or, exactly, yes. Um, to, together, I, together with Jeruntel. Yes, yeah, we're, we're putting some of the... Um, some of the sheet music from that, some of the arrangements into the Project Hubbard book uh, at the back as a kind of bonus, um, which is nice. Um, there, there was a real problem when, when uh, a few years later, because they, their second disc had SIDS on it, and their record company claimed the SIDS at YouTube, which meant suddenly that all the, peop- all the videos with SIDS in them that were on that CD were suddenly had, paying money to the C60 Orchestra people. Wow. Okay. Uh, which is a real problem with content ID sometimes. Wow. Well, I didn't know that. I I just noted that I I wrote to the organizer of this orchestra and said, hey, why don't you come play in our city? And then they never replied. And then I got an email from the former organizer, and and he told me like, yeah, the new the new organizer of the orchestra. He puts all these Z64 stuff down. So, and this is how it unfortunately ended. It can badly. happen. It can yeah. happen, but there's nothing to stop anyone putting together a new ensemble. I mean, it's it's just regular orchestral players. I mean, we're we're going to use the London Symphony Orchestra for our Commodore 64s, uh, Commodore 64 stuff, and they're fine with it because you know they've already played Zelda, they already play Final Fantasy. They already do video game scoring for top games, you know, Commodore 64 music, playing Thing on the Spring and William Wobbler together and calling it Thing Wobbler. Uh, you know, it's all, I, I must admit, I'm amused at making the London Symphony Orchestra play a Commodore 64 <laughs> tune called Thing Wobbler. It, it appeals to me. Uh, yeah. And, and appeals to Ben and Rob, I think, as well. Yeah, you're, 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 you're not the only one who did that. I mean, um, we spoke earlier to Dayflow, you know, who also mm-hmm. who also did the same thing and I think he he even used a different uh, he even used a similar orchestra. So similar. Similar, yes. Um he did did that at Abbey Road. It was um I think there was, was about 50, 50 players in the end. Um we we'd be going for nearer 70 for the Barbican. So 20 um, more. Okay. It makes all the difference, especially if they're all drummers. <laughs> exactly. Yes. <laughs> funny, funny, funny. Yeah, it's interesting. It's a thing nowadays that a lot of composers are doing that with orchestra. So it's like a, well, I think that a lot of them. This is when they compose. This is sort of how they hear it in their heads, and then they're limited to you know three voices on a SID, and it comes out being a good song. But still, when they originally envision it, it has this big orchestral backing and whatnot to it. Very definitely, very definitely yeah. true. Yes, especially Rob Hubbard released some of his synthesizer original versions that were used to um, to size it down to sit music. So mm-hmm. the original version of Formula One really sounds a lot more dynamic and has a lot more voice to it because a synthesizer can a bit more can do a bit more than a C64 even back in the day yeah so i know what you are talking about here well we we've taken that idea and we've really run with it in project hubbard because what we've what we've done is uh, imagine that he'd done more of those tracks uh, but he'd done them in a uh, with lots more expensive equipment in a proper studio for a proper album so the the concept is, let's say Rob Hubbard was an electronic music star in 1980, and he released an album called Hubbard 80, and most of the SIDs, or 15 of the SIDs, for instance, were covers from that album. Um, and that's and what we're doing, is creating the imaginary album that those came from, using uh, no technology that existed um, before, or so existed after 1980, after the end of 1979. So, uh, luckily, uh, uh, Marcel, who's working with Rob on this, uh, has access to the Vintage Synths Museum in, in the Netherlands. So, we can get access to some pretty rare things like the Korg PS3200, which is a monster thing. Huge. Uh, they only made 200 of it. <laughs> That's amazing. And um, how does it feel for you to work together with all those music legends? Um, it's it's always an honor because they're such great musicians and great people as well. You know, I was just a normal fan 
who decided to step up and start doing shit. And uh, uh, this is where this is where we end up. It's it's quite astonishing, really. Surprisingly, a lot of those composers um, are even surprised that anybody is interested in hearing their stories and re-releasing the music in a way, you know. They are. Um, Rob, when, when I was trying to sell Rob Hubbard on the idea of the book, and the Kickstarter also has a book in it, um, and he, he, he wrote back to me saying, I'm not sure anyone would buy that after I haven't done anything. And I was like, uh, Rob. <laughs> and the same thing came up in his Bedroom to Billions interview. He was like, eh, I've done nothing special. And to, because to him, it was all stuff he did for a living years ago. And he still has, uh, still has a problem acknowledging to himself that it, it touched so many lives. And but it, what we did was that we made the book into four sections. So there was only there's only a quarter of it was biographical, and even that is not like okay, what did Rob do? Uh, what did Rob eat for breakfast on the third of November, nineteen fifty three? There's not nothing of that. It's it's uh, the, uh, some biographical stuff to fill in the timeline. Then uh, a great musicologist to actually analyze the music and work out why it worked to actually give it some serious analysis, because chip music has suffered from not being taken seriously. Like that that uh, or orchestra guy that you were talking about, who's now running that ensemble. It's easy to say chip music, oh, it's not music, but it is. And it's very pure music, and it's almost proto-sketch music that people can, when they listen to it, they almost... If a regular piece of music is like a, a glitter ball, a chip piece of chip music is like a bit of silly putty. <laughs> and uh, the brain, when it gets the silly putty, can mould it into whatever experience it wants it can add its own memories to it it can add its own interpretation with the glitter ball you're pretty much stuck with what you've got so each so chip music chip music tunes are experienced differently by different people um because it, they attach their memories they attach their feelings exactly and, and they attach what they hear in their head when they're hearing it because there's that the brain loves to complete things and sids are essentially incomplete and um, uh, Rob Hubbard did a lot of other stuff too that many people don't know. For example, he even did um, like music for Ski or Die or Skate or Die, even on the PC in uh, AdLib for AdLib. Yes. And and for PC speaker, and he really managed to make the uh, PC speaker sound for some games really very good. You know. Well, that, that's the archive bit of Project Hubbard, which is where we collect all this stuff that people haven't heard, all the recordings from old PC, uh, Genesis, Mega Drive, NES stuff, and collect that together and turn, turn some of it into SIDS. Great. Because, because that's what he was doing at the time. If you've got his, you've got stuff he did in the 1980s, which is great music, done when he was a real synth guy, synth jazz. Um, he's more of an orchestral guy these days, but still, still with the jazz, but much more academically minded in terms of music theory. So you've got Rob Hubbard sounds, and you've got Rob Hubbard tunes, and all that was needed was the the person to put them together. And so Jason Page of Graph Gold has been doing some sterling work in Sid Tracker 64, and will start using Rob's EA driver, which we've got the source code of. So to do um, you know, two samples, three voices, uh, to and do a developer diary of what it's like to develop a, to implement a Rob Hubbard tune in a Rob Hubbard driver in, in 2017, which should be fascinating to read. And the book also has a section on the technology where it explains the waveforms, the shape of the sounds he used, um, looks at driver differences between games. And then there's a whole section devoted to the fans and cultural impact as well, because what defines Rob is his, is, is his impact on other people. I mean, to him, it was just stuff he did, but he made a, he had a huge impact on people around him, the people he worked with, the fans, the journalists. And to an extent, the story of Rob Hubbard is more the story of how people reacted to Rob Hubbard than actually the story of what Rob Hubbard did. Yeah, um, it just reminds me when we, when we interviewed uh, Saul Cross, who is also um, 
in in C sixty four games. He said he said during the interview he heard a thing of a spring four weeks before release because he was working in the same building as Rob Hubbard. Oh, excellent! <laughs> yeah, <laughs> and, and so we we didn't know that that she was actually active back in the days. You know, <laughs> we found that out during the interview. So nice. I, I I can totally rely. I can totally um, understand. What, you, what and, you're talking about. And, you know? and the funny thing about that is that um, Saul Cross did the music for the game My Life, which we've changed to Rob's Life for the Kickstarter. And now it has Rob Hubbard title music. So Rob Hubbard has taken over Saul Cross <laughs> <laughs> for, for the title tune and the loading tune. But yeah. the in-game tunes are still his. So, uh, yeah. so far. <laughs> <laughs> Until we work out how to remove them. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, uh, I mean, I mean, it's totally, um, totally great. I mean, uh, as I said, people are not always credited for everything they they have done, you know. And sometimes you are surprised. Like I didn't know that that he did the music for that, you know. <laughs> so I can totally understand because um, if you talk to people and you talk about adlib music, most people would probably say Bobby Prince. Who did you know the Duke Nukem 2 music? Ah, uh, yes, yes. And uh, Commander Keen and so, all that stuff. And nobody would say, "Oh, Rob <laughs> Hubbard." Rob Hubbard is more connected to Sid music, even though he did a lot more than this Sid music. That's true. I, I think people stopped paying attention after the Sid because they they went into other places and he didn't do quite as much. And when it did appear, it wasn't in games they probably would have played. Um, he was still doing good stuff, though. I mean the 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 stuff he did for, for instance, Sherlock on the PC in about 96, I think, was excellent. There's a, a, a load of stuff he did for that that was beautiful. Um, hopefully some of that will be played by the London Symphony Orchestra when Rob, if we get Rob's concert. So um, that, that would be great. I'm really happy to hear that you're not only concentrating on one part, which is a sit part, but also on the other parts that, that is concerning Rob Hubbard. I think Rob was quite keen on that. What one of the one of the attractions for doing the Kickstarter for him or for you know getting involved in it because he's not doing it as such but he's he's in it and he's with it but he's not running it. But anyway, the attraction was that there's a lot people do only ever talk about that four years, three or four years he was doing Sid. And he's done an awful lot of stuff. He's done uh, jazz stuff for a glass blowing thing. He's done a music box thing, a couple of music for Nokia games that were never released, as well as the EA stuff. Um, recently, he's uh, and other orchestral cues and played in jazz bands and played in cover bands. And um, it's quite a rich texture of, of, of a life in music and stretching back. Um, to before SIDS, when the, to the time of the war and Chimera and Formula One recordings that you mentioned. Um, uh, so, uh, mostly, we, uh, even when he did the, the, the he did a work opera, it, there, there was um, a TV program in the Northeast where they, they got him and a, a chap called Steve Daggett, who used to be in the Lindisfarne, I think, a famous group, Lindisfarne, or is now. Lindisfarne? Who did Frog on the Tyne? Mm, I don't know. <laughs> I think it was Lindisfarne. Anyway, so um, him and uh, Rob did the music and Steve Daggett did the words for essentially a half-hour um, TV program about work and being unemployed in the British social security system, which was broadcast on, on, on television in a regional uh, in Newcastle and around the surrounding area. And um, we, he, Rob was um, almost played that music live. It was run off sequences. But he was running around the studio as they were recording it, tweaking knobs and just making everything go. So if you imagine Rob running around much younger, of like a like a blue ass fly, trying to keep this thing going while the Steve Dackett was being cheeky in the middle, singing about being unemployed and how nice it was to take money from the state and. Uh, uh, but we, we've got that opera, and one of the tunes in it, two, well, two of the tunes will probably, one of the tunes is already a Sid, called Task Force, and it sounds just like a Lost Dragon's Lair 2 piece, it's amazing. And another one is called Life of Riley, which hasn't been done yet, but it's Rob's favourite piece from that, so 
Um, uh, much of what we're doing is kind of is trying to give Rob first of all to get give people the full Rob, not not, not just the, the partial Rob because his music he's a, he's an amazing musician and he's done a, such a lot of stuff and uh, to make him happy really. Yeah, a lot of times you you, you get you know there's um y'all y'all know about a specific musician y'all know the name y'all know the music but you don't really know who the person is behind it you know you don't you know understand where they came from what they're that that kind of personal stuff that that you can find out from a project like this yes yeah um we're, we're i think um, much of the information that we uh, well rob does get can get very talkative when he does interviews for documentaries so we've got a couple of um extended interviews where he's interviewed for a documentary and most of that will be left on the cutting room floor in the final documentary but we've got access to the unedited interview which gives us a lot of biographical material to work with and leads to follow up and then we can find the people he worked with the guy he recorded sanction with for zap 64 uh, steve daggett who he did all that stuff with um a guy's a ta who he worked with because people i think remember uh, people who work with Rob remember a lot more about his career than he does, because you know, c- can you remember what you were doing for breakfast last week or last year? But um, uh, the people who came across Rob, it tends to be a memorable thing, because he did memorable things, but only memorable to other people. So the the project includes the book, which is biographical, but also in, you know has more informative stuff and in, in music and whatnot. It's about 25% biography and 75% looking at his work and the people. I think that's about right for, mm-hmm. for Rob. He's a modest guy, and um, that's not going to be, it's not going to be a tell-all book. We're not going to if – he, if he had a depression in 1983, we don't particularly care, <laughs> unless it caused him to do something particularly musically noteworthy, but then even then we'd gloss over it. It's to, it's to throw his music into some kind of context and throw some light on – where it came from and what and how he did it, rather than delving into the personal details of Rob. Because it, it, even if you did that, I think that the fans wouldn't. That the fans want to know things related to the music and st- relevant stuff, and also to fill in to have a sense of the timeline, how he developed over time, and that's what we're going for, really. And you mentioned um, interview material that you will use for that. But I guess there will be no videos or audio um, recordings from those interviews, I guess. No, there are. Um, we're we're, we're oh. going to be allowed to use two of them for, as far as I know, uh, two of them for uh, as downloadable videos for people backers of uh, the deluxe version. Great. Um, uh, it's, uh, one of them is from the, the Button Bashers movie, which is a, a nice kind of fun docu- docudrama about the cultural things going on at the time that they, they actually re, they actually do recreations of things like fight, playground flight fights about ZX spectrum and Commodore 64. And they, they have, they had a thousand people apply to be Rob Hubbard. Uh, and then Rob Hubbard said, no, you're not having anyone appearing as me in that movie. <laughs> so <laughs> that's send them away again. Um, um, interestingly, Ben Daglish, the part of Ben Daglish, might well be played by a relative of Ben Daglish. So, let's see, shall we? Great. So, and and then you've got the uh, the Hubbard eighty, the studio album, which will be, and that yes, that's the one where that we we've got a a very a fixed list of modular synthesizers that were around at the time. Uh, Rob Rob always loved his gear. So the the him and with him and Marcel working with uh, these very powerful but a limited set of synthesizers to create the tunes from which the SIDs came from is was a were quite an attractive idea. It, it's very difficult being a composer and then having to do remix the definitive remixes of your own work, especially when there are thousands of the damn things and a lot of people have put a lot of passion into them. Right, and some of them are, are some some of the the remixes are unbeatable in, in the particular style they chose to do. But the, the the one place that the the composer can go that no one else can is backwards, and that's where we went. And so it's called actually a premix album. Um, there will also hmm. be unreleased stuff. What what kind of is it? Unreleased music that, yes, that he's yeah. done. 
Yes, he did. Uh, when he was doing things like War and Chimera and Formula One Simulator, he was also doing a lot of other tunes that never actually made made it to SIDS. Some of those are now making it to SID, but we're putting the actual version he did on the original equipment into the into the archive set, so people can hear both versions. Um, in some cases, there's there's um, orchestrations that he did at a, at a, with limited equipment, which are now being brought into uh, into proper orchestral sample libraries, um, such as the Nokia games, such as uh, the Sherlock games. And a fair amount of, I think, unreleased stuff from the EA years, stuff that never got put out, that uh, we have managed to rescue from Voyager Sequencer. Um, but that was targeting an MT32, so there's, there's, I'm not entirely sure what we've got yet, but uh, uh, we've got well enough material for a double album of unreleased and rare Rob Hubbard stuff, which Sid fans won't have heard. And the, and the, um, the project information also says that there's new new SIDS by Rob Hubbard. And is, is he actually doing them himself, or is this like like taking his information and someone else is putting it to the, to the SID? Um, yeah, it's combining Rob Hubbard's music with Rob Hubbard's sounds. Hmm. So, we, for instance, we make the decision, okay, this, this sounds a bit like a Dragon's Lair tune, so we'll target the Dragon's Lair 2 driver. And then Jason Page is doing it. We'll look at the limitations of that and honor those limitations and those sounds hmm. and then pull the Rob Hubbard tune from the 80s into the, into a, a SID form. And what you've got is essentially a, a SID that's as good as anything he ever released. He's, present Rob can't do that, but past Rob left us a treasure trove. Okay. It's like Michael Jackson being a hologram, I guess. But uh, <laughs> uh, but uh, we're, we're, So we're, we're utilizing past Rob very heavily, even though present Rob isn't able to help that much apart from to approve the, the work and to generate ideas and stuff. Um, he'll be... Uh, with Hubbard 80, he's working with Marcel quite quite closely, and uh, with the orchestra... But his heart is in orchestration, so when, when it comes to the Rob Hubbard concert, you can bet he'll be in there getting his hands dirty with the LSO. Well, by, by interviewing all those composers... Um, as I did a lot in the past, not only for the podcast, but also for our YouTube channel. I've noted that there is a wide range of views regarding composers. For example, when we spoke to Dave Lowe, he said, like, of course I'm using the original code. Of course I'm using an original Amiga. Of course I still know how to code this stuff, you know? <laughs> I didn't look at the stuff for 17 years, but of course I digged into it again. So um, even though he forgot a lot, he, he spent a year of digging into it again, you know, relearning, as Jeruntel said it once when we interviewed him. So it, I guess it all depends a bit, not only on um, 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 how much you forgot, but also how you approach the project. If you say, I want to make the hands dirty myself, or if you say, I want to do it with other people who help me. Well, yes, and Jar has producers now as well. He doesn't just uh, do all the normal twiddling himself. But yes, it, it, um, Matt Gray got his hands dirty with Sid uh, when he was doing the new Sids for Reformation. I mean, he felt um, a bit nervous about that, but he got down, he got down to it. Um, Rob never really, it, it stressed him out even thinking about it. Oh, um, okay. Okay. So, uh, because it, it was such a kind of big roadblock that it, that, mm. that that the Rob that sat there like a master in the 80s in the room, um, that Rob is now Dr. Rob Hubbard, music theory expert, jazz person and orchestrator. I the, see. That, his, that the brain is completely different between those two things. I see, yeah. I mean, obviously, you know, if it would have been nice if Rob would have sat down with a compiler and a Commodore 64 <laughs> Um, but I think people from from the results we're getting from marrying old Rob with old Rob sounds, I think uh, no one's going to be disappointed in the, uh, especially since the stuff that he was composing in the mid '80s is mid '80s Rob brain. The stuff okay. he'd do now it would would come out completely musically different, and uh, and his ideas would be so big that it would be very frustrating to put them down into three voices, 
Ah, I see. Yeah, that's another problem. Um, you, you mentioned the high voltage sit collection at the beginning of the interview. So, despite you are um, releasing now unreleased sit tunes, as you said, especially from the EA years, will you still supply them after the Kickstarter to the high voltage sit collection? They will make the collection after a suitable amount of time so that Kickstarter backers don't feel ripped off. It's important that they're there for history. But equally, I think people are buying, you know, they're supporting Rob. They're giving him money. Uh, they're giving, you know, the, the campaign money to do all these weird and wonderful things. But um, they deserve a bit of exclusivity on these things until they, uh, for a while, and a good while. But uh, history won't lose these things. They're, that's very important. Because I'm asking this, as we all know, there has been some <laughs> problems in this area, you know, like, oh, it's my stuff. Uh, while, while others said it should be made available for free to the community, you know. So it's it's a good attitude you have. So you say Kickstarters are getting it exclus exclusively, but in the long run, it will be in the archive for preserving Yes, I mean within uh, within two years, definitely, possibly quite possibly a little bit sooner, but um, uh, hopefully people will love them and the project so much that they they will buy into it early so they can hear them early um, okay. and hear them as they develop and support them support that. But uh, you, you don't want them disappearing into a project and then the project the project just stops and then those things have, have vanished forever that's that's a bad thing for history that this the, the whole thing is a the book is about yeah. preserving rob's history yeah it would be a bit it would be a bit funny to to then create new bits of history for of rob hubbard and then hide them or yeah. not make them available of course yeah well I, I i understand you're totally getting my point because there is nothing that disturbs me more than having an archive but not not everything is in it because some people are against it like why it's an archive an archive means an archive you know i know right i mean I, i've been part of the hvsc team for many years okay um, i i so, didn't know that okay so um i, I was there there pretty much at the beginning oh and okay. uh, my, my my job is to is to advise on possible legal stuff because um, if you're protecting yourself against legal stuff then you need someone with at least a little bit of vague knowledge about that inside the tent mm. and that's kind of what I've been doing um, because there, there are some people in the scene who say oh, right, copyright is bad people in no copyright are bad but there's a lot of predators out there preying on composers and preying on people And it's at least a little helpful if there's someone inside the tent to try and fend them off or to stick up for them. Yeah, is, well, I mean... There is a lot of predatory stuff. I mean, you know, as a guy that, that understands the legal ramifications of this, we can look back to a few years back when, um, like, you know, mainstream music was sampling C64 songs. You mean... Timberlake? Yeah, no, t Timberland, not Timberlake. Oh, Timber, Timber, yeah. Timberland, yeah, Timberland, <laughs> well, yeah. Tim yeah. Timberland and Zombie Nation. Right. Yes. Right, and yeah. they're, they're sampling uh, the, the SIDS and putting it, or they say they're sampling the SIDS, but when you listen to it, it's just the whole SID. They just stuck it in there. Yeah, and then they had the problem, then they were in they were in legal trouble with uh, GRG, Clan Room Galifos. Yeah, well, they tried, I think. Okay. I don't know if that's still, did well, they what, what settle that? Um, I, I actually flew to Finland to give evidence at a court case in Helsinki Ooh. in Christmas 2008 to defending GRG. Um, that that didn't work out very well. Not mm. because I was terrible, but um, although I probably was, um, but because the judge judges don't get chip music and they don't and they often don't get copyright law either. And this one certainly didn't. But the The case ended when it went into when it went to America, and they were suing Universal, and the court turned around and said, "There's no case to answer because that the rec that recording of that SID was never registered at the U.S. Copyright Office." Mm. Now, if he'd have been the composer as well, then it would then then that would have gone very differently. But Timberland's lot was smart because they bought off the composer right at the beginning. Um, they bought him off and put a gag order on him. 
so he couldn't testify. So GRG was unfortunately in the position of having to sue just on the sound. And that's a lot more difficult. And in it, as we saw, as soon as it got to America, the Americans were like, oh, it's not in our system. It doesn't count. It's not, it's not copyrighted. And that, so the case died, which is very unfortunate. Um, but the, the zombie nation, uh, the zombie nation case was interesting because that, uh, that involved zombie nation getting Dave Whitaker to sign a transfer of ownership when Dave thought he was signing a waiver. Hmm. Um, uh, so Dave thought he was uh, getting the money for everything being as normal. The guy had ripped off the SID, got caught, was about to sign a contract with the Ministry of Sound, and no one knew about it. And um, uh, except him, obviously. And um, but the contract he made Dave sign for to get his to get some actual money gave him lock, stock, and barrel ownership of the SID. There was no jurisdiction in the contract. Um, there was it was a lot, it was like two paragraphs, no moral rights to get actually credited for having written it. I mean, oh. Zombie Nation does not even, according to that contract. Well, they, it, Dave didn't waive his moral rights, so technically, every time Zombie Nation claims to have written that, he's infringing Dave's rights morally. But no one really cares about that in the legal system. So. Wow. Um, there was an attempt to get it back in 2009 with the producer behind the Crazy Frog album because they wanted to do a Crazy Frog ringtone of uh, Lazy Jones. Yeah, from Jamba, which is in the UK called Jamster. Uh, the, it would have been released through them. This was, um, yeah. the, this was, But this was the record label behind the Crazy Frog album and the ringtone. Um, and it went to court in Germany. And that was the worst judgment ever written in copyright i think um it, one of the arguments was that because michael jackson ripped off carl orff this was not a case that had to be answered and then after that the only the only solution was taking legal action in america but um that's like hundreds of thousands of dollars and the statute of limitations had expired so wow so that died too. Although there are measure, there are there is another attempt to get it back uh, ongoing. Uh, now Zombie Nation has less money for lawyers. Uh, let's see how that goes. Uh, I mean, music is always a, a very, very, um, very difficult thing. I'm. I just, I just try. If I do make music, I just try to make it sound terrible enough that no one will ever want to steal it. <laughs> Uh, there's a lot of Kickstarters follow the same approach. <laughs> oh, gosh, yeah. You, you see, all this music law and uh, copyright and all that stuff, we could fill hours with that topic. So back to the Kickstarter. Um, there's also a game cartridge, Rob's Life cartridge. Yeah, absolutely. Um, there, there was an original game called My Life, and um, I went to Trevor Story, the graphic artist who's done artwork for Project Sysology and a lot of other stuff, brilliant artist, and um, suggested that we, we, it'd be good to have a game that Rob Hubbard was the hero of. And it, the fact that it, was, it became Rob's life seemed to chime very well with the fact that there was a, a biographical aspect to all of this. So the game is Rob's life and the Kickstarter is Rob's life. Um, that we've just put a new pledge level in where people, someone can pledge to be the end of the end of game boss, <laughs> and and they get their face on the loading screen, and they oh. get to be they get to replace Ben Daglish as the end of game boss, and uh, they get their name in the scroller. But that's not on the, that's not for the cartridge. That's a disc a customized disc version that person gets. But I think it. Um... It's probably a different game because there was another composer game, composing game, um, made by a composer, and that was to be on top by Chris Hillsbeck. Yes, if you were writing a game from scratch about Rob Hubbard, then writing to be on top Rob Hubbard edition would probably be pretty much the game design you go with. But we didn't have that time, and it's a reasonably small part of the Kickstarter, so we went for a a, a more light-hearted route but it would okay. have been that would have been a good game uh, trying to become a, a famous game composer in the 1980s you could have some pretty good character names like Cark Mail 
Yeah, it's uh, <laughs> yeah, it's interesting. Um, so so as we spoke about the Rob Hubbard project, um, as I remember, the uh, Kickstarter starts soon. Uh, let's talk a bit about what other plans and projects you have. If there's anything you can talk about, they're pretty much all the plans are pretty much right there in the Kickstarter. Um, the the concepts, the books. There might be more composer books uh, based on the same template as a Rob Hubbard one. There's not. There's not. There's a couple of composers who would justify and have have uh, enough to justify such a book, such as Tim Follin. Uh, his book would be. He's an interesting, very interesting person with an interesting creative history, um, fascinating composing style, very unique musical feel and uh, an interesting set of things he's done out after after he left the Sid and after he left video game music composing the tr problem would be tracking him down well, to rely on first time witnesses again <laughs> <laughs> well um, there are other composers uh, that I would like to read and hear more about for example Wally Baben who did the Tetris music on the C64 I think there'd, there'd be there'd be grounds for a book which combined a few biographies of, of composers such as Mark Cooksey and uh, Fred Gray and um, even Martin because um, Martin's kind of retired into being energy efficient now he's uh, always talking about Teslas and uh, very interested in it very interested in ecology mm. uh, not not so interested in Sid because it's all people ever want to talk to him about from our scene, and he's got a bit fed up of it over 30 years. And, well, and, the, uh, the 85 Eddie uses less voltage, so just talk to him about that one. Um, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, and uh, Ben Daglish's book would probably fail the lawyer test because there'd be so many spicy anecdotes. <laughs> right. Um, so let me ask you, um, what is... You said you made uh, other projects too, Um now let's let's take a bit aside the Rob Hubbard um, project. What is the project or the person you spoke to or any experience that you are the most proud of that you were involved with? Um, I'm proud and proud of them all in different ways. I'm immensely proud of um, being able to work with Marcel on Project Sodology. And kind of um, be an, an idea man for putting. He's already got plenty of ideas of his own, but uh, to have been able to, to to have an influence on such amazing music, he's a real musical force. And um, more personally, the, the the new Symphony 64 stuff, the orchestrations I'm doing that should get played at the concerts, um, I'm very proud of those. Um, I've had to learn orchestration pretty much from scratch with no academic background and uh, it's fun it's, it's frustrating though but uh, it's very rewarding and then being able to be in a position to make it happen so it's played by a big orchestra um, doesn't really get much better than that and do you think now that you are such a big name that um, people have a higher expectation about the outcome and the quality of the products you, you release than for other Kickstarters or other people doing similar projects? Well, I, I work with big teams, really. I, I, I gather people together and get them to, to work do, producing the stuff that they want to produce, that they're enthusiastic about and that's in their style. And that can't help but come out, come out good. I mean, if you're asking Fast Loaders to do metal, you're asking Uncle and the Bacon to do Big Band, and you're asking Mark Knight to do a John Carpenter, Rob Hubbard soundtrack that sounds like it came from a science fiction horror movie. Mm -hmm. uh, they're, all, they're all passion projects. The, the, the chip music guy who is uh, Kenny McAlpine, who's doing the book, that's his passion project. He's wanted to do that forever. Uh, Matt Gray's Reformation, he's doing his favorite tracks now, and finding that a lot easier than doing his own tracks because he doesn't have a duty to be definitive he can just have fun so everyone working on all the projects it's always been their particular dream that, that they're trying to make real 
And when that happens and they're, they're technically qualified, uh, you just get quality out of the end. Um, my job is just herding the cats. <laughs> okay, I see. Um, but you are very successful with it. I mean, people know if your name is behind it, this will be quality. You know? I'd, I'd hope that they have some confidence, even though I, I feel quite um, I feel a little bit guilty that I had to take time off from Symphony 64 to do this, but it was a question of getting the concerts into the calendars, um, if we make that much target. But uh, we, these things need to be booked so far in advance that we need to take the time off, get the things in, in, into the calendar, then get the tickets sold, and then everything comes out in after that uh, in the end. But uh, most of the most of the stuff in in this kicks in the Rob Project Hub Kickstarter is is running in parallel. And I guess as an audio guy, um, project guy, you are also looking around you. So, is there any other project you are interested in that you are not involved with? Um, there's a lot of good projects, but none that I would none that I would get involved with because I'm acutely aware of how little time I have already. No, no, no. I mean, I mean you as a customer, you, <laughs> oh, as a, you, you as somebody, you know, Oh, I'm pledging for this. Oh, right. Yes. The Thalamus Kickstarter um, for Hunter's Moon cartridge. That's, that's oh, yes. running. That's running at the moment. Uh, the, uh, Andy Roberts, the, the guy behind that is a very professional guy and takes it very seriously. And Martin Walker's on board and, uh, Well worth the pledge. Good answer. I, I, I pledge for that as well. <laughs> and, uh, and, if, and if he does well, then Creatures 3 comes out. So. Yes, I've read that too. Yes, of course. <laughs> Is there any doubt that it won't come out? I'm pretty sure that thing will happen. I, I think as, as, long as, um, as long as he gets to where he needs to be with Hunter's Moon and And it looks like it, the Kickstarter's doing pretty well at the moment. It's uh, it'll get there. He'll get funded, and Definitely. we'll see what happens. And, Definitely. And then, I mean, he really wants to do that stuff. So it's a question of uh, he'll do it unless it becomes impossible. You know, I mean, what 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 um, what we have learned a lot of times is sometimes even if the Kickstarter or Indiegogo or something isn't successful the first try, try it again. Doesn't hurt, you know. It can work that way. It depends if it was a. It depends what was wrong with it in the first place. Well, how, so how much for Project Covered? What is the the goal um, for fifty thousand for that going to be? Um, pounds, the, the, I guess. Fifty thousand pounds. Yes, the stretch goals. The the main stretch goals um, uh, for the orchestras are one hundred and fifty thousand and two hundred thousand. Um, but this is basically two kickstarters in one because it's the book and the albums. Normally that would be two Kickstarters, but I couldn't do two Kickstarters. People would get annoyed, so pile it all into the into the one and then hope. But um, feedback seems to be that it might do uh, it, that it might do okay and, and get there. And as I mentioned before, hopefully if it doesn't get successful in the first try, you try again. Hopefully we don't have to worry about <laughs> you that. You said the same thing when I, when I said the same thing to Dave Lowe. <laughs> and, and where can people go to find out information about it? and to, and to uh, ProjectHubbard.com. Um, and Very also good. there's a blog on C64Audio.com, which is uh, covering various bits of it uh, in more detail for people who want to know. There's some interesting stuff about uh, how you how, how you create new SIDs for a composer who can't compose SIDs anymore and uh, uh, what what you do about the, how you solve that composer who's been overly remixed problem if they need to do definitive stuff. Uh, so it's mm. it's discussions about that. Yeah, I'm, al I'm already on it. Mm. You, you yeah. even got sound examples from SoundCloud and stuff on it from Project Hopper. So, so you, mm. you release some stuff as a sneak peek. I think there's a lot in the Kickstarter, so it does make sense to get some of the audience familiar with the structure and what's in it ahead of time so that they don't get too overwhelmed on day one. And uh, it's not as if anyone's going to copy it and release their own Kickstarter in the, in the meantime, so uh, I think we're safe.
Plus it's good. plus it's really entertaining, cool. so it just people get nice feelings earlier. And we will put we will put links to all those sites in our in the podcast Thank description you. so people can check them Excellent. out. Well, thanks for taking the time and talking to us. It was a real pleasure. Um, thanks for talking to me, and uh, good luck, guys. That was Chris Abbott. If you want to know more about Project Hubbard and how you can help them reach their goal, you should go to projecthubbard.com, like right now. The, the Kickstarter will be running through November 5th and includes stuff like the hardcover or digital edition of the book, new SIDS, a game, and there's a lot of other stuff you can pledge for, like mugs and cassettes and vinyl. And Just, just go there right now and check it out. Um, for the rest of us at Scene World, you know where you can find us, sceneworld.org. If you want to get in contact with me or Jurg, you can email us at podcast at sceneworld.org. Um, until next time, see you later.